0: Okay, welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today is a really exciting, successful author, Sasha Eisenberg. Um, Sasha, thank you so much for, for joining
1: us. Thanks for having me, Bradley.
0: So, so we're gonna talk about the, the engagement, which is you know a book you just wrote on the history of, of political history of same-sex marriage. But you know, it, it seems like when you look at your kind of overall bio uh, you know, it's all over the place since you've written books on sushi, on digital tools and political campaigns. You've been a professor. You started a company. You know, I you're not the profile of a typical journalist. How do you see your job?
1: I mean, as a writer, I'm interested in in sort of delving into complex worlds and sort of unpacking how they work and explaining them. So, the, you know, the first book, as you mentioned, was about sushi and globalization. I sort of saw the about fifteen years ago, I wrote this. I saw that the trade in raw tuna for the sushi market is as, as a sort of illustration of, you know, globalization, global supply chains, and spent a year and a half, you know, hanging out with people at fish markets and auctions, and then, you know, a uh, uh, couple of years later, I I uh, wrote a story. Uh, for the Times Magazine about the use of field experiments and the increasing sort of behavioral science bent of of political campaigns, and realized it was intertwined with all these new innovations in data and, and analytics and targeting, and um, I realized that was a world that I wanted to to throw myself into. And and um, so I'm you know I'm very much a generalist, but I like to go deep into into things. And then you know I often right around the time that people start to want to treat me as an expert in those fields, I get scared and decide it's it's time to move on to something else. <laughs>
0: do something else. Yeah, how long typically to, to be kind of become at least enough of an expert to, to write a definitive book like you have, how long do you need to usually spend on a topic?
1: Uh, it, it differs. So the Victory Lab, that book about campaigns, I, I rushed in like eight and a half months because we had to get it out before the election year. Um, this uh, this new book, The Engagement, is took me 10 years start to finish, about six years probably of like full-time work. Um, some of that was just the scope of the story is, is bigger. And some things is that, you know, some of that is sort of getting up to speed on the, I'd never really written about legal topics before. And so, you know, a a large part of the book, but far from all of it takes place in, in, you know, in courtrooms and, and such. And, you know, there is a, a a sort of, you know, degree of authority that, that, that I have to develop just to. Just to go out and do interviews um, on that.
0: So, what what, what makes you pick the, the the topic? And by the way, should we be calling it gay marriage or same sex marriage? Is there a distinction?
1: Uh, I so there are from an activist perspective, there are. I think same sex marriage is probably a little more precise. Um, you know, to be very technical about it, the the laws that that restricted people from marrying were about the sex of the people that were involved, not actually about their sexual orientation. In theory, um, uh, a gay man and a straight a gay man and a lesbian woman could have married 20 years ago anywhere in the united states um uh so same-sex marriage is probably a little more precise although i use gay marriage interchangeably um you know and and now i think the push from activists has been to call it marriage equality i think there's a, a, a a there was a recognition at some point i think both from a messaging perspective and um more broadly that uh You sent the impression to, you know, the kind of persuadable middle that you were trying to change marriage or make a new type of marriage by calling it gay marriage or same sex marriage. Whereas the the political demand was for uh, gays and lesbians to be included in marriage as it existed for everybody else. And that's that marriage equality sort of better reflected that in.
0: So what about this movement was so interesting to you that you wanted to devote 10 years of your life to studying?
1: I mean, I didn't know it was 10 years at the beginning. I might have thought definitely about it then. But, you know, so it was it was over the course of 2011 that I was writing this last book, The Victory Lab, about, about the science of political campaign. So I was having a lot of conversations over the course of that year with pollsters, people who studied public opinion in some form or another and over and over again um folks would make a version of the same point to me which is that they had never seen attitudes move as quickly on a single issue as they'd seen them move on marriage and um i'd written enough about campaigns at that point to know how difficult persuasion and especially sustained persuasion is and so the fact that you had public opinion moving four or five points a year in one direction across subgroups across demographic groups um uh and it was really interesting to me. And it seemed like the type of issue on which it would be very hard to move opinions. It's, you know, people's ideas about marriage are grounded in their religious values and these sort of, you know, very traditional ways of seeing the world. It's not like, you know, do you think that the stimulus bill should be, you know, $2 trillion or $3 trillion and you read a persuasive op-ed or something or a politician you like changes your mind. And so, that was just an interesting puzzle to me as somebody who observed politics. And it was over the course of 2011, 10 years ago this summer, that, that the New York State Senate voted to uh, uh, legalize same-sex marriage. That was the, New York was the first large state to do this through the political process, as opposed to having it initiated by the courts. And that was really a signal to me um, that, the, that the the sort of political dynamics that let this pass in New York and um, made Governor Cuomo you know, so eager to sign it into law it seemed to me to presage a real sort of shift in, in the politics of this issue nationwide. And we were already starting to talk about this as the defining civil rights movement of, of my generation. You know, I guess I'm 41 now, I guess I was 31 then. Um, and I realized that I had no idea where this had come from as an issue and how it, how we were sort of moving to a national consensus on it. And it seemed ripe for, you know, um, uh, to write the type of sort of, you know, maybe grandiosely the type of book about about this social movement that I had sort of grown up reading about the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s.
0: So would you say that the success of the movement is because it was an issue, an idea whose time had come, or because a, a group of people put together a brilliant, sustained campaign and, and managed to get it over the finish line?
1: Um, more of the latter. So this definitely wasn't... Uh an idea whose time has come as evidenced by the fact that, you know, where my book starts in 1990, this was not an issue or an idea at all. You know, in 1990, there was not a gay rights group in the United States that had defined marriage uh, as a goal and, or had endorsed same-sex marriage. There was barely a politician in the United States who'd been asked his or her opinion of it. Gay rights opponents weren't trying to stop it. It just didn't, it was not, not an issue. Um, And so it kind of comes out of nowhere um and uh nobody would have told you 30 years ago if if you'd surveyed, you know, the the 100 most important influential figures in in gay rights politics what are going to be the gay rights issues that dominate the the next generation this you know hardly anybody would have put this on their top 10 list. So it it was not inevitable in the way we think that other uh civil rights movements are. Um Uh, Some very lucky things happened, I think, fortuitous, accidental, uncoordinated things to elevate this to a national issue, to the type of thing that the Supreme Court could end up dealing with. But um, uh, there were some very important sort of strategic, tactical decisions, the involvement of some major donors who dramatically changed um, the arc of the political conflict over this issue. And then I think it's just important to recognize that all of this was on a foundation of social uh, opinion change that was grounded in a big social shift which is basically people coming out right you know we presume that the percentage of the population that's gay is the same now as it was in 1990 but the percentage of people who are who are um uh out of the closet is obviously much higher and it's really important just to just to state the obvious i think which is that you know one way that that this area is different than um than conflicts over you know equality racial gender equality um religious equality is that that people control the conditions under which they acknowledge disclose announce who they are to the world and um it's true sexual orientation it's also true of gender identity and so there's this you know we know that a major driver of the opinion change on a whole slew of gay rights issues not just marriage is people recognizing straight people recognizing that they have a friend neighbor family uh co-worker who's who's gay or lesbian and that that ends up um uh basically pushing them leftward on the political questions
0: so we c- coming out of the closet obviously still isn't easy probably for anyone even today w- what accounts for the cultural shift where 20 years after uh this you know this, this issue isn't even really on anyone's radar um it it starts to become Uh, enough of the norm that people feel much more comfortable coming out and then that starts to create the political shift and momentum on marriage.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you're sort of getting at what what is probably a virtuous cycle that's a little hard to disentangle where sort of social acceptance, probably some of it informed by, by popular culture and like elite cues, makes people feel comfortable coming out. The community around them changes when they realize that they personally know somebody who's gay or lesbian and become invested in their you know sort of earning full citizenship um uh that leads other people to come out that creates a more of a culture of receptivity and then you know you're sort of like off to the racist in in races and that social change you know one thing that's really interesting is the extent to which marriage though leapfrogged other priorities in the gay rights movement so Uh, next month, this fall is the 25th anniversary of of the Defense of Marriage Act passing Congress and being signed into law by by Bill Clinton. And on the same day in September 1996 that the Senate passed the Defense of Marriage Act, 85 votes to 14, the majority of Democrats and uh, all Republicans voting for it, um, the Employment Non-Discrimination Act came up one vote short. And at, at the time that was seen as the most gettable sort of low-hanging fruit on uh, the gay rights agenda before Congress, banning uh, the, you know, treating sexual orientation the way that race and sex and, and religion and such are treated under civil rights laws for just in the workplace. And the assumption was, you know, winning that was very close and marriage was this like, you know, far off pipe dream that, that you know, would never get anywhere. Now we're, we're 25 years later and marriage is the law of the land and the sort of successor bill to, to end uh, the Equality Act still hasn't come for a vote in the Senate. Um, and so, you know, some of this is the, the inversion of the hierarchy. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that um, marriage, the majority did not have to give up anything to uh, sort of accede to the demands for equality by the minority. And I think often we think about civil rights movements um, or social justice movements in terms of like these big public values. There are debates over equality and liberty and freedom and justice and such. Um, and, and certainly they are those. But they also in many cases are conflicts over uh, scarce resources. And it's possible to look back at, I think, a lot of the defining civil rights movements in the United States in those terms. And so, you know, the early women's movement uh, against coverture for property rights you know, was rightfully, accurately seen by husbands and fathers as a threat to their wealth. Um, men saw women getting the vote as, as something that would dilute the political power that they had. White people saw blacks getting the votes as, as a threat to their political power. Uh, desegregating neighborhood school, public schools, changed neighborhood institutions in which, you know, people felt their property values and quality of life were invested. Um, you know, every effort to expand immigrants' rights has been seen by native-born people as a, as a threat to their jobs. Uh, uh affirmative action obviously is about, you know, fundamentally about competition for, for, for places in education and, and jobs. You know, the Americans with Disabilities Act was a, you know, um, landlords, landlords and developers saw as, as something that would pass along new costs to them. And what was remarkable about marriage is it didn't have that dynamic. And so, you know, when the Supreme Court ends up ruling, you know, every time a court ruled up to this that in favor of same-sex marriage rights, um, and up to the Supreme Court in June, 2015, it was this momentous landmark decision in which a new uh, a range of rights were extended to a class of people who had been denied them, but the implementation was really easy, which is the day after this landmark civil rights decision, all that had to happen was for a, uh, you know, a county clerk to maybe change a few words on a one-page form, maybe some, you know, from husband and wife to spouse one, spouse two, or something like that, somewhere at the, at the you know, uh, uh, vital statistics bureau, somebody might have had to create a new line on a spreadsheet um but nobody had to give anything up and if if there had been a limited number of marriage licenses for example in a given state i think it might have been a lot tougher to bring a majority of straight people to support this if 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 you know otherwise liberal ally types um had to worry that that by letting gays and lesbians marry, now their kid would have to wait online for for a year to get to get their marriage license, and there just wasn't that com- It didn't create a new sense of competition. That's why you know, like, the implementation of this was so easy. We're seventy years after Brown v. Board, and we still don't really know how to integrate neighborhood schools um, because the implementation is is a bear.
0: So, Sasha, what do you what do they actually do, right? So, you know, you, you gave a really good explanation as to the context of why the fight was more winnable, kind of how they saw it, uh, the contrast to other movements. But, like, obviously, you know, this this didn't just sort of happen out of nowhere. So what were the key moments in the campaign, and, and who did them, and what did they get right?
1: Yeah, so there's this whole sort of reimagining of what a campaign to uh, win at the ballot looked like in the wake of the defeat of Proposition... Uh, sorry, the success of Proposition 8 in 2008, the defeat of the gay marriage side when voters in California passed a constitutional amendment to ban marriage and a group called freedom to marry a single issue group that was focused solely on marriage, um, took the lead on this. And, you know, they, you know, one of the major things that, that changed in the sort of 2009, 10, 11 period was getting rid of the kind of traditional coalition model in these that that ran ballot measures in these states. You know, one of the sort of successes of, the the gay marriage side of this was how much the coalitions in favor of gay marriage expanded from the first time this was on the ballot in 1998 in Hawaii and Alaska to 10 years later. At the beginning you had local gay rights groups, the ACLU um, and that was kind of it. And 10 years later the table of of groups that want to uh, uh, beat back a constitutional amendment to gay marriage includes not just the gay rights groups and the ACLU but the NAACP and uh, uh non-gay civil rights groups, the bar Association, libertarian groups, um, the AFL CIO, other unions. And what happens when you start to get 20, 30 people at the table in these things is they found that the messaging sort of, re, you know, followed like the lowest common denominator. And often the messaging in these campaigns would be something like don't don't mess with our constitution. It's not who we are as Californians. And all the research, because that was the thing that you could get the Libertarians and the Bar Association and the League of Women Voters all to agree on, but when they went out and tested it against the opposition's messages, which were often about what legalizing gay marriage would do to children who would have to learn about this in school, they realized just how weak this messaging was, and so some of that required new messaging, but some of it also required a change in the structure of these campaigns, and so what one thing we saw when... There was a push in the legislature in New York as 2011, in 2011 was it was the, it was freedom to marry taking the lead, creating New Yorkers United for Marriage, um, and acting you know, as the sort of central strategic force in that effort. And that allowed them to be a lot bolder in the campaign tactics and the messaging that they use. And, and then you really see that when they go to the ballot in 2012 and, and, and sweep all four of the states that... That have a vote in November,
0: and so all these groups, whether it's the Libertarians or the the Bar Association or anyone else, um, is it that they inherently understood and supported uh, same-sex marriage, but until the kind of social norms changed to make it politically safer, they just couldn't do anything about it? Or did the leaders of Freedom to Marry and the other groups, uh, you know, persuade them in some way? And if so, what what did it for?
1: Yeah, I mean, some of it was sort of lefty coalition building. I mean, one thing that you see from the early 90s to the mid-2000s is, is how gay and lesbian activists go from being at the margins of democratic politics to a sort of core part of the democratic coalition. And how other civil rights groups, you know, the 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 Leadership Conference for Civil Rights in 1993 when is very wary of formally getting behind a gay rights bill. A decade later, there's sort of none of that and some of that is that gay money just became really central to how the left does politics. So some of it, I think, was was sort of reciprocity, that, that gay donors and gay political figures had proven themselves central to lefty politics, and thus other groups um, came along. Some entities, like the AFL-CIO, became invested in this in part because of the overreach of gay marriage opponents you know one of the really interesting things that happened so in every state opponents of gay marriage that in every state where they try to amend the constitution they have to decide what type of constitutional uh, language they want to put before the voters and in some places it's fairly modest which is it says courts cannot interpret marriage to be anything other than between a man and a woman. And in some states, it's pretty bold, and it says, you know, no relationship between two people uh, who are not a man and a woman shall be given any of the effects of marriage in this state, or something like that. And in those situations, those constitutional amendments banned civil unions, domestic partnerships, and there was a lot of evidence that they could get in the way of public contracts, um, and possibly union contracts. uh, uh, And so... You know, one thing that you saw in Michigan where in 2004 there was an effort to pass one of those really sweeping bans, the UAW and Ford Motor got involved in um, uh, opposing the constitutional amendment. You know, uh, Bill Ford or whoever the head of Ford Motor was at the time um, stood with organized labor because they thought that this new constitutional amendment could get in the way of their ability through the collective bargaining uh, process to... Negotiate benefits for for uh, gay and lesbian partners of employees. And, you know, you saw something sort of similar in, in Ohio, where the head of Ohio State University comes out against this constitutional amendment, not because of the cultural politics of it, but because the university had been hiring faculty and staff with the promise of domestic partner benefits for employees and a constitutional amendment um, would strike down the ability of a public institution to do that. And so one thing that the coalition grew out in part because opponents uh, sort of drew the lines in places that made people stakeholders in, in gay marriage who would not have had reason to be otherwise.
0: And, and where do you think kind of the age of the internet Fits into this in the sense that so, you know you, you talked about uh, the, the public kind of accepting the notion of same-sex marriage a little faster. Obviously, everything can get done for better and for worse faster now. Um, if 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 this were nineteen ninety, if it was, was was when the Hawaii uh, amendment happened. Um, and there was no real internet yet, uh, does this still work or how much does it need that kind of magnifying factor?
1: So we know that the thing that makes somebody most likely to uh, take a liberal position on a whole bunch of gay rights issues, not just marriage is basically how they answer the polling question. Do you know, do you have a friend, family member, a coworker who's openly gay or lesbian? And, you know, we have to assume that the, the, the ability, what we think of as knowing somebody, uh, has changed dramatically because of the internet, right? It's not just the people we interact with on a daily basis, but, um, the lives that we get a glimpse into, especially through social media that, you know, I think really expand our circle of familiarity. And so, um, I have to assume that, you know, I see cousins of mine whose sexual orientations or, you know, gender identity would be basically unknown to me because we live in different places and don't see each other often, uh, but for Facebook. And so my guess is that that ends up being a real driver of, of uh, familiarity and comfort that, you know, Facebook is probably the leading place. Americans see wedding photos <laughs> these days or anniversary pictures. And and one of the things that happens after Massachusetts legalizes same sex marriage in 2004 is gay and lesbian couple start marrying and opponents of it have trouble, uh, coming up with people who feel harmed by it. And I think that right, the yeah, world
0: the world doesn't end.
1: The yeah. world doesn't end, right? Exactly. And 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 and, and opponents had made the the you know boldest sort of hyperbolic claims like you know, not that far from what you just said, you know, like, this is going to be the S- end of Western civilization, the American families going to disintegrate. And instead, what people see is to some degree, how, you know, banal marriages when even when gays and lesbians do it, which is like, yeah, you see pictures of people toasting with champagne, and it looks pretty much like everybody else getting married. And then they go to like pure one imports or whatever. And it's like, that's what social media is. And so, you know, I, I, I think that that has to be a huge driver of, of the kind of Opinion or opinion change that we see on this issue and 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 the internet makes that possible at a sort of speed and And cr- maybe even creates a sort of false sense of intimacy with people that you don't interact with otherwise
0: So what can everyone else learn from this, right? This has got to be one of the most successful Kind of policy and kind of normative change movements in the last century um, it, Everyone else who's trying to get their own movement uh, off the ground, you know, w- w- how can they copy this?
1: So this is the thing, you know, and you probably hear this, like everybody on the left is hoping that there's like some, you know, off the shelf gay marriage campaign magic that they can apply to whatever their thing is. Um, and, you know, I think there are aspects of this which are, are so unique to this issue that that there's, you know, that it doesn't apply. One thing that, that, that comes up is, you know, I talked a little bit about that group Freedom to Marry that was uh, uh, sort of relaunched in 2009. And... It set itself up as a campaign, not, you know, it it said its goal was to uh, uh, deliver marriage equality in the 50 states in the District of Columbia, and then it was going to put itself out of business, which which it did in 2015 after the Supreme Court decision. And uh, that's a really different sort of approach to what we usually get from interest groups, which are established to either serve a constituency um, or advance a bundle of issues and tend not tend to get in the position of, of being invested in, in sort of perpetuating their own existence um, and think about what it'll take to satisfy donors, funders, members, how to keep their relationships with elected officials. That's the way the Human Rights Campaign is built. That's the way the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force is built. And Freedom to Marry came along and said, we just care about this one thing. And what that allowed them to do was to not have to make some of the compromises that other groups did. You know, one of the obviously sort of moments that everybody remembers in this history is when Joe Biden went on Meet the Press in May of 2012 and sort of got out ahead of what Obama's planned announcement of a change in position on this. You know, one question is, like, why was Joe Biden being asked about this on Meet the Press on some random... uh, uh sunday in in may of 2012 there wasn't a bill coming to the president's desk there wasn't an executive order um part of the reason was that freedom to marry that february had started a petition drive to try to get the democratic party to change its platform plank so that for the first time it would endorse marriage equality um that's a sort of you know big symbolic gesture um that's that they wanted to undertake to drive sort of public education. And they got a bunch of DNC chairs to uh, come out and endorse it early. And then Antonio Villaragosa, who's going to be like the honorary chair or something of the convention said he supported it. And then Nancy Pelosi, who, you know, was going to preside over the convention said she supported it. And pretty soon, basically everybody in democratic politics was being asked, do you think that the democratic party should, do you agree with Nancy Pelosi, that the democratic party should change its platform plank? and cabinet officials are being asked about senators are being asked about it, and eventually gets to the point where where David Gregory puts it to Joe Biden you know the human rights campaign would never have started a petition drive over a symbolic thing like that with the goal of putting you know Nancy Pelosi or Obama's cabinet on the spot on a sort of symbolic issue they were trying to get Pelosi to move on some you know incremental gay rights issues in the house they were trying to get the White House to move on an executive order to get government contractors um, to, to take to implement non-discrimination policies on, on the basis of, of sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, so this would like strategically, this would have been a crazy thing where you would just sort of antagonize your your would be allies over something of like no great consequence. But freedom to marry didn't have those calculations because they were thinking about only what would sort of push the marriage movement forward. And that's. And, and that's a really, I think that raises like a lot when you look at other issues and ask how, how might the gun debate be different if instead of groups like Everytown or, you know, the Brady campaign or handgun control or whatever, who, whose goal is kind of a wholesale gun control gun safety agenda, you had groups whose goals were, you know, much more specific, banning ghost guns, getting the CDC to, 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 um, uh, uh, collects public health statistics on gun crimes, whatever it is. Waiting periods. Um, would would they make different strategic decisions about how they approach, let's say, you know, Joe Manchin, if they weren't thinking about what the long term arc of this issue were, but was, but just getting discrete results on a specific uh, uh, policy change. And that's something that 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 these folks working on marriage did in a way that I haven't really seen other. Sort of comparable movements um, uh, do, and so I think the question for activists in any area is like basically: is your movement built for the outcomes you want, or is your movement built because that's how the interest group structure of it has always existed, and you're you're kind of living within that framework?
0: Yeah, that makes total sense. I, I want if it's okay I hit a couple of other topics before we let you go, and the, the the first is you know you're an expert in sushi as we discussed earlier. What is the overall state of sushi in the US today if you had to give it a grade? Like what cities in the. US do you think have the most overrated sushi and the most underrated
1: sushi? Oh, uh, it's a great question. Um, I think sushi's pretty good in the US now. Um, you know one of the things one of the sort of stories in, in this book I wrote 15 years ago was how air travel and, 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 and air freight um, you know, has basically made it possible to get uh, a good sushi everywhere. I think Washington D.C. is a place that historically has not had particularly good sushi. Surprisingly, Um, uh, you know, around the world, one of the things that sort of brought first-generation sushi bars into cities was the presence of a Japanese embassy and home offices for big Japanese corporations. D.C. is a place that you know, D.C., Chicago, uh, both you know, both cities I've had good sushi in recently are 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 you know, probably lagged by by that. Metric, but I do think that Americans, if outside of Japan, Americans are eating the best sushi of anyone in the world at a um, more accessible price point than uh, for good sushi than anyone outside of Japan, and um, you know basically any city where there are a few people with money and a decent airport within driving distance these days are are you know getting. Adequate to decent sushi, which was not the case 15 years ago. All
0: right, you're also an expert in California politics. Um, tell me what you think will happen with this whole uh, Newsom recall, and kind of once it's over, assuming he stays in office, oh, kind of what does it mean for him? I
1: mean, I, I think a lot about what happened with Scott Walker in 2012, where opponents sort of prematurely qualified a recall before they had a you know a really good plan of, of how they were going to um recall him from office and it ended up being the thing that launched him to you know being a national figure and a uh ultimately a presidential candidate um in 2016. I suspect that that if Newsom survives the recall which I think is probably you know by far the most likely outcome here that that um there's a chance that uh it elevates him if this gets me if this gets national media coverage in the next month um, uh, this could elevate him in a way that, that, you know, makes him a different type of figure to national Democrats than he was before the recall. Uh, you know, his, his strategy is entirely about nationalizing this, talking about it as the Trump recall. And that's sort of ready made, I think for, for, um, him to impress, you know, liberal activists nationally, uh, and with Andrew Cuomo presumably out of the picture, um, he is the <laughs> Democrat sort yeah. of big state. I mean, you yeah. know, uh, big realize. state governor with yeah. with 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 uh, you know potential national future, and and the 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 only thing standing, I think, in the way of him being a a very you know formidable candidate for for the presidency in 24, or 28 or thirty two is the fact that we have another San Francisco politician who comes out of the same small corner of the world who's standing in front of him in line. And they've already decided once that they weren't going to run against each other. And you, you sort of wonder what Kamala Harris's presence, you know, does to kind of limit what he could do next.
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So last question, you got your start as according to the research here at at George magazine, Um, Gary Ginsburg is a, a friend of the podcast. Friend of mine was on the show recently to talk about his his new book, First Friends. Um, What would Gary not want you to say about Um, him on this podcast? (laughs)
1: Uh, So I I ended up at George because at the age of 15, Gary uh, uh, realized that he alone among the senior editors at the Startup Magazine could have his own assistant if he told a 15-year-old to come and work for free. So um, I'm not sure how sensitive Gary is to to the statute of limitations on child labor laws, but... um, uh, he he definitely was involved in that. Um, uh, Gary likes to tell the story that I, I came in and interviewed him in, uh, for to, to try to work there for the summer after ninth grade. Um, I think he was sort of impressed by my as, yeah, as he, most, most he was impressed by too. my yeah, at the time. And apparently John Kennedy saw me walking out of his office to, 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 to leave the building and went to Gary and said, Gary, is that your son? Um, uh, apparently, to, to, to John, all Jews look alike. Um, uh, and uh, Gary said, no, he's some kid who came in and asked me for a job. And John said, well, he looks like your son. You need to hire him. And so Gary r- ran out of the building and chased me to the to the, uh, to the the subway at 50th and Broadway um, uh, and said, do you want to start? And I I later learned that it was because John basically thought it would be funny for him to have a mini me running around the office.
0: And and we wonder how Bay of Pigs happened. Um, All right. Well, Sasha, thank you so much. And and let me just really recommend the book to the audience. Uh, It's out now on every major platform and everywhere else. Uh, Sasha Eisenberg. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Bradley. This was fun.